Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Taking the Long View. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 1st, 2016. A few weeks ago, I watched the movie The True Cost on Netflix streaming. I recommend the movie is worth watching, but like so much of our news today, it's deeply discouraging. The documentary explores the so-called true cost of our clothing by examining the lives of the 40 million people, 85% of whom are women, who work in third world garment factories for wages as low as $10 a month. The scenery ping-pongs from the catwalks of Paris to the sweatshops of Dhaka. The story proceeds along three main lines, human exploitation, environmental degradation, and our culture of consumption. Two years ago, on April 24, 2013, an eight-story garment factory in Bangladesh collapsed, killing over a thousand workers and injuring another 2,500. This despite many advance warnings and complaints about the safety of the building. The disaster became emblematic of the many problems inherent in the fast fashion business model of how clothes are made for us first world consumers by what amounts to slave labor in the two-thirds world. A broad, <clears throat> a broad range of players get to have their say. Factory workers, managers and owners of the factory, fashion designers, advertising gurus, economists, union activists, who, by the way, were beaten for their efforts at organizing workers, and even a former manager at Monsanto. But a big surprise, all the major retailers declined to comment. Not all the news in the movie is bad. They interview several catalysts for change, like an organic cotton farmer in Texas. There's also Sophia Minning, the British social entrepreneur, founder of the fair trade movement and CEO of a company called People Tree. And Livia Firth of EcoAge works passionately for change. The film's website even has a drop-down menu with five tips for quote-unquote buying better. But practically speaking, when 97% of our clothes are made in sweatshops, like the ones featured in this film, it's hard to imagine what the average consumer can do that will make any meaningful difference. At the end of the movie, I didn't feel guilty for shopping at the mall, but I did feel trapped and discouraged. One reviewer called the movie despair-inducing. The psalmist this week prays for God's blessings, not just for Israel, but for all the peoples and all the ends of the earth, like Dhaka, I imagine. That resonates with me as a good prayer, but it also feels like a future so far off as to be negligible. Similarly, in the reading from Revelation, John says that God is making all things new. His prophecy imagines a tree of life next to the river of life, which are for the healing of the nations. 
It's such a beautiful phrase, but it sounds so distant. Like the psalmist, John's vision in Revelation is global rather than parochial, encompassing the nations and all the kings of the earth. But there's a jarring disconnect between that apocalyptic vision and our contemporary realities. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is a present reality, said Jesus, but it's also a future hope. A little over a month ago, March 24th marked the anniversary of the assassination of Oscar Romero, who lived from 1917 to 1980. He was the Archbishop of San Salvador in El Salvador. Romero was murdered while celebrating Mass in a small chapel in a cancer hospital where he lived. It's quite a mouthful, but nonetheless worth noting that in 2010, the United Nations General Assembly proclaimed March 24th, the date of Romero's death, as the International Day for the Right to the Truth concerning gross human rights violations and for the dignity of victims. That's what Romero did, and that's what the movie True Cost did. <clears throat> Romero had always been close to his people. He preached a prophetic gospel. He denounced the injustices in his country, like torture, and supported the development of popular and mass organizations. He became the voice of the Salvadoran people when all other channels of expression had been crushed by exploitation. But his life was cut short with a better future still far off. One way to process our deep discouragements is to remind ourselves, in the words of a poem prayer that are associated with Romero, that we work and pray for a future not our own. The so-called Romero prayer was composed by Bishop Ken Utener of Saginaw, Michigan and later delivered in a homily by Cardinal John Dearden in November of 1979 for a celebration of departed priests. Romero was murdered five months later. In a later book of reflections, Bishop Utner wrote a piece for the anniversary of Romero's martyrdom entitled The Mystery of the Romero Prayer. He said that the mystery is that though the words of the prayer are attributed to Romero, they were neither written nor spoken by him. Listen to the poem prayer, A Future Not Our Own. <clears throat> it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. This is what we are about. 
We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water the seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces effects far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may, we may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. This Romero prayer isn't an excuse to be a passive bystander and do nothing. It's a reminder that in all our work, whether for Dhaka or Damascus, we must also watch and wait. We hope and pray for what we don't see, says Paul. We live by faith, not by sight. We persevere, says the book of Hebrews, even though we have not received the far-off promises of God. For books this week, I review a new book by Pope Francis. The name of the book is called The Name of God is Mercy, a conversation with Andre Tornielli. New York, Random House, 2016. This book is 151 pages. A little over a year ago, on December the 8th, 2015, Pope Francis announced the beginning of an extraordinary year of mercy, a year of jubilee, which will last through November 20th, 2016. After a two-hour Mass before tens of thousands of worshipers, Francis began the, year, began the year of mercy with a symbolic ritual, knocking on the massive bronze doors of the Basilica of St. Peter, and then walking through them. Whereas the door is usually locked, this Jubilee year the Vatican expects about 10 million pilgrims to walk through that same door. The symbolic significance? I am the door, said Jesus in John chapter 10, verse 7. And so Francis prayed, You are the door through which we come to thee, inexhaustible source of consolation for everyone. To pass through the holy door, said Pope Francis in his homily, means to rediscover the infinite mercy of the Father, who welcomes everyone, and who goes out personally to encounter each of them. How much wrong we do to God and his grace when we affirm that sins are punished by his judgment before putting first that they are forgiven by his mercy. It is truly so, said Pope Francis, paraphrasing James chapter 2, verse 13. We have to put mercy before judgment. And in every case, God's judgment will always be in the light of his mercy. 
Let us abandon all fear and dread, he continued, for these do not befit men and women who are loved. Instead, let us live the joy of encounter with the grace that transforms all. <clears throat> As Andre Tonielli points out in his introduction to this book, divine mercy has been central to Pope Francis's papacy since the very beginning. On the morning of the very first Mass that he celebrated after being elected the Bishop of Rome, Pope Francis gave a homily on the woman who was caught in adultery. It was then, almost exactly two years later, on April 11, 2015, when he issued his papal bull in English called The Face of Mercy, Bull of Indiction of the Extraordinary Jubilee of Mercy. The first part of this book consists of questions and answers between Tornielli and Pope Francis. For example, <clears throat> why are we sinners? What place does mercy have in the personal life of the Pope? Why is it important to go to confession? What do you need in order to obtain mercy? What is the relationship between mercy and justice? The confessional, says Pope Francis, is neither a dry cleaner nor a torture chamber. And then in the last part of the book, we have the actual papal bull, the face of mercy. Pope Francis continues to surprise. He freely confesses his own sins and his personal need for forgiveness and mercy. At a meeting, <coughs> at a meeting in a Bolivian prison, he told the inmates, standing before you is a man who has been forgiven for his many sins. And when he speaks about the church, he often uses bitter irony, as when he quotes St. Ambrose. When it comes to bestowing grace, <coughs> Christ is present. When it comes to exercising rigor, only the ministers of the church are present, whereas Christ is absent. In his homily last December, Pope Francis put it this way, You cannot conceive of a true Christian who is not merciful just as you cannot conceive of God without his mercy. Mercy is the key word of the gospel. We should not be afraid. We should allow ourselves to be embraced by the mercy of God, who waits for us and who forgives everything. A new book by Pope Francis, the title, <clears throat> The Name of God is Mercy. 2016. For movies this week, I review a documentary called What Happened, Miss Simone, from the year 2015. This Netflix-produced bio-documentary about the legendary Nina Simone, 1933-2003, opened the 2015 Sundance Film Festival and was later shortlisted for a 2016 Oscar as the best documentary. The director, Liz Garbus, does many things well in this film, the best of which is simply to let us linger 
watch and listen to the legendary blues and jazz artist display her musical genius and her free spirit. The film moves through the several phases of Nina Simone's life. After starting to play the piano in church at the age of four, and until she was about 20, Simone was a Juilliard-trained phenomenon who intended to be the first black female classical pianist in America. Then followed her jazz career and stormy marriage to her husband and manager, Andrew Stroud. During the Civil Rights Movement, she joined the radical Violent Fringe, and later still, residential stints in Africa and Europe were followed by a resurrected career back in the States. Nina Simone herself narrates much of the film, supplemented by her daughter, husband, friends, and music critics. The title of the film comes from a quotation by Maya Angelou. A documentary film shortlisted for Best Documentary. It's called What Happened? Miss Simone. And for poetry this week, we begin a series of poems by John Berryman. He has a dozen poems, <clears throat> each of which is called Addressed to the Lord. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972. This is called Addressed to the Lord, number one. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake, inimitable contriver, endower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon. Thank you for such as it is my gift. I have made up a morning prayer to you containing with precision everything that most matters. According to thy will, the thing begins. It took me off and on two days. It does not aim at eloquence. You have come to my rescue again and again in my impassable, sometimes despairing years. You have allowed my brilliant friends to destroy themselves, and I am still here, severely damaged but functioning. Unknowable as I am unknown to my guinea pigs, how can I love you? I only as far as gratitude and awe confidently and absolutely go. I have no idea whether we live again. It doesn't seem likely from either the scientific or the philosophic point of view, but certainly all things are possible to you. And I believe as fixedly in the resurrection appearances to Peter and to Paul as I believe I sit in this blue chair. Only that may have been a special case to establish their initiatory faith. Whatever your end may be, accept my amazement. May I stand until death forever at attention for any your least instruction or enlightenment. I even feel sure you will assist me again, master of insight and beauty. Address to the Lord number one by John Berryman. 
Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 1st, 2016. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. 